What is up, everyone? You're listening to The Shane Holcomb Show. I'm your host, Shane Holcomb. The Last Dance documentary concluded with a boom, with questions sports fans craved known for the past 20 years answered. Basketball fans flocked to their TV for the past five Sundays with anticipation, some a trip down memory lane, while the younger generation today witnessed the greatness of the Bulls dynasty and Michael Jordan. Not only did The Last Dance documentary seal MJ's argument as the greatest player to ever pick up a basketball, but cemented Phil Jackson's coaching legacy having to control many dynamic personalities and characters in the Bulls team, leading them to six championships. Today on the podcast, I want to welcome on a very special guest, lead play-by-play broadcaster for Comcast and the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s, Tom Dore onto the podcast. How's it going, Mr. Dore? Shane, thank you. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's terrific. I had a great time, um, obviously, with the Bulls. And a little background on me, I played high school, college, and professional basketball. I had the high school All-American stuff, but a couple knee surgeries and ankle surgeries pretty well ended that. Um, Then I played overseas professionally for a while. I went to college in Missouri, went to the NCAA tournament a couple times. Um, And then, uh, like I say, played professionally. And when I was in New Zealand as a professional basketball player, I was playing in the professional league and also the TV announcer for the, uh, for the league. Um, and so that was really interesting. When my team would play, my analyst for the games would say, well, that's not what he says to do. Why, why do you think he'd call a timeout there? What, what do you think's going on? So uh, I, I really had a blast. I had a great time in New Zealand and, um, uh, and playing basketball. I loved it. And then obviously got into, uh, into the announcing gig. Definitely. And began your broadcasting career after playing basketball in New Zealand. You started color commentary, a little bit of radio work for Texas, SMU, Missouri in the 80s. What made you venture into sports broadcasting after your basketball career? You know, as a kid, I would, uh, I grew up in Chicago. And so I would listen to the radio broadcasts for the baseball, basketball, football games. I'd listen to the TV when I could, the TV broadcast, but they were usually delayed. And so they weren't on until after the news at 1030. So I couldn't watch those very often. Every once in a while, I could see a little bit, but not much. Um, And obviously, like I say, the football games on the radio or TV. And so I got to really enjoy the banter that those people had, how much fun they had with the job. And then when I was in high school, one of the Cubs radio announcers, Lou Boudreaux, uh, the good kid, Lou came out actually to see me play. He was trying to get me to go to Illinois, but um, he invited me out to dinner. So I got to really get to know him. And we talked a lot of announcing. We talked a lot of different things. And he and his partner, Vince Lloyd, ended up to be really good friends for a long time and really helped me in my career and kind of make decisions and, you know, what to do, that kind of thing. But I had a blast. I really had a great time growing up in Chicago, listening to all the great people that came through. Definitely. And you were statistically one of the tallest broadcasting teams in history with you and Johnny Redeker at 6'11". Of course, you had 7'2". And later on in the process, Stacey Kinn coming up at a 6'11". But transition into your relationship with uh, Johnny Redcord, the legendary broadcaster. Talk a little bit about your partnership with him on air, but also relationship with him off of air. We were best buddies. 
we would play golf together. We would go fishing together. We would go breakfast, lunch, and dinner when we were on the road every day. We sat together on the plane. We did everything. You know, it was like a marriage, and it really was like a marriage for six, seven, eight months, something like that every year. And um, we, we, you know, if he was doing something, he said, hey, I need a little help. I got this fundraising dinner or I've got a meeting with these guys. Can you come out and play golf with us or whatever? Neither one of us ever said no. So I had a couple of things and, and I won't go into what happened or how it happened, but I had a, a pretty big deal that I was working on and this, we were going to play golf. And this guy was so nervous to meet Johnny Kerr. Me wasn't a big deal, but Johnny was a big deal. So he takes his first swing and he can't see the ball. Well, he hit it right it dead down into the ground. And so um, so Johnny and I are standing behind him, and Johnny says, where the heck? What? And I, so I look, and I point down to the ground. And so now Johnny's got to go over and bust him a little bit. Johnny pulls it out of the ground and says, you might want to try and hit this again. I swear to you, the guy wanted to run home right then and there, and the deal was done. I had the deal. Um, so, but we did that with each other a lot. You know, whatever it was, we were going to help each other. He was my guy. Yeah, and you were announcing in the 80s, eight, uh, 80s 90s, and early 2000s, so the technology has changed drastically throughout your broadcasting career. What are some differences in your preparation going into a game from the early 90s to the mid-2000s, and what are some of your thoughts on how the NBA is played today? Let's go back to uh, the 80s when I was a radio announcer, uh, University of Texas, University of Missouri, doing NCAA stuff. I was the college foot, voice of college football for a few years for CBS. So back then, they had to mail things to you. There was no fax machines, computers, that you know, that stuff didn't exist. And so um, uh, you'd get from a college, you'd get an overnight package on Monday or on Tuesday, I'm sorry, on Tuesday after they put everything together on Monday. And so you had Tuesday to Friday to prepare for a football game. Basketball games, you said to wing it. I mean, you did, that information just wasn't there. You'd get it when you got there, but you know, you had to rely on talking to assistant coaches, talking to the head coach, talking to the writers. So how that's changed has been dramatic now. Your, your ability to prepare. Now they have so many statistical categories for you to be able to, to find anything you want. Um, so that what's changed so much is the information available. But when I started in radio, you know, it wasn't much more than picking up a telephone and talking into the telephone. I mean, you had headsets and microphones, but you were just going through a telephone line. It was like a telephone call. You'd get hung up on, you'd get disconnected, you, you know. I mean, it, so now it's all through the telephone line again, but it's a whole heck of a lot better now. Um, and then how technology and TV is unbelievable. Um, you know, if you'd have told me when I started with the Bulls that you would be broadcasting TV games through a telephone line, I never, never would have believed it. You know, when I started, it was really cool. We had this this new satellite thing that we'd bounce the signal off and it would go back to the studio and then they'd send it out. It was unbelievable. But that's all 
a thing of the past. Now it's all digital. Now it's all um, computer-driven technology. And again, we never had anything like that. It wasn't even close. Yeah, and transition into the Bulls dynasty, it really the Bulls dynasty really started the global reach of the NBA that you now see today. When did you realize that this Bulls team was bigger than basketball team on the global stage? Any maybe specific moment or game that you realized that, okay, this team is big on a global stage, not just in the U.S.? <laughs> right. Well, my first year, I did, I don't know, four or five games, six games, something like that as their backup radio announcer. So my first game was at Detroit, the year the Bulls beat the Pistons in the playoffs. So that was my first NBA game ever. So um, I'm getting ready to get on the bus, and Michael comes out. There were no security guards. There was nobody there. It was just a few of us that were standing there talking. So Michael said, oh, who are you? So I explained who I was, what I was doing, all that. And uh, he said right behind me on the bus, we talked about kids. We talked about politics. We talked about all kinds of stuff. And so we had a great conversation, really a great conversation. And that developed into um, the job. You know, that summer, they were looking for a, a radio guy and a TV guy. Well, I figured, you know, if I got interviewed for the radio job, I thought that would have been really cool, really cool. So Kevin Harlan, who is now with CBS TV, Kevin's a good buddy of mine, Kevin at the time had just finished doing Missouri radio and went up to, wanted to inter, wanted to apply and interview for the Bulls TV job. And so he said, hey, you just did all these games on radio and they really like you. I've heard that they really liked you. And so would you, um, would you mind if I put you down as a reference for the job? And I said, no, heck no. So he said, okay, I'll be there on Tuesday at this time. And that's when my interview is. So they ought to call you after that. And I said, Kevin, not a problem. So sure enough, that Tuesday, the phone rings. And it's this guy, John Tui from Sports Channel at the time, Sports Channel Chicago. And John says, um, hey, Tom, uh, this is John Tui from Sports Channel Chicago. Um, wondered if you had a few minutes. And I said, sure, John, let me tell you, I know why you're calling. Kevin is a terrific talent, a great guy, and a very positive, will be a really good voice for the Bulls for you guys. And he's kind of laughing, and I'm thinking, okay, I made him, you know, I've done something wrong here. Um, and so I said, okay, um, I'm guessing that you've already heard all this already. He said, well, Kevin just left, and he's not going to get the job. And I said, okay, so I'll bite. Why are you calling me? And he says, well, we wondered if you would be interested in applying for the TV job. And I, I, I was stunned. I mean, I'm from Chicago, knew the history of the Bulls. And obviously with the talent that they had, I knew they had a shot. So anyway, we go to, um, uh, I go up there and interview and there's all the brass sitting all around me from, you know, everybody involved. And so, um, they said, well, let's, I want to tell you a little bit. And I said, hold it. Before we go any further, I want you guys to understand who I am. I'm a radio guy and I'm a college guy. If you're okay with that, I'm great with continuing on with this. But I don't know anything about the NBA and I don't know anything about TV. Again, if that's all right with you guys, 
I'm great with continuing the conversation. So we finished. It was it, it was a sales job. They wanted me to take the job. So I got out. I called my wife. I said, call the realtor. I, you know, I wasn't going to be home for a few days. I said, this is a done deal. We're moving. Um, they hadn't offered me the job yet. but And sure enough, I got the job and moved up here. But it was um, it was a great time to be with the group. It started out to just be a good group of guys. And by the time we were done, or by the time they were done, everywhere we'd go, it was the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or, you know, pick your great rock and roll group walking in. We'd get to Miami and invariably we had a home game and then the flight to Miami, which is a really long flight for us. And so we'd, um, we'd get in, get on the bus at the airport and go to the hotel. There'd be 3,500 people there at the hotel at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And you just, you know, you, you realize exactly who this group is. But that first year, the full year, I realized how unusual this was. They were just that good. And, um, and it, it really was that unusual to be able to, to be with a team like that that could do the things they could do. Unbelievable, the amount of people that would be outside of a hotel. You saw that film in the last dance soccer many of them getting off of the bus, and there would be thousands of people at the oh, hotel yeah. waiting for them. Oh, yeah. So Michael gets referenced to the Pope uh, in this documentary back in the 92 Olympics. Uh, he really was the first NBA star to have his own shoe. Now, Larry and uh, Magic didn't really have their own shoe. They were, of course, part of Converse. But what was it like covering Michael, not only as a global icon, but also as the most relentless basketball player who has ever played the game and who wanted to win at whatever cost? Well, he was great. I mean, to me, he was the guy that sat behind me or across from me on the bus. Oh, he was the guy that sat kind of across from me on the plane. So it was, he was my friend, you know, a guy that I worked with. He wasn't what everybody else thought of Michael Jordan, really. He was just my buddy. And so what was it like to cover him? I mean, now I will say this, we had an NCAA tournament pool. You know, everybody fills out the brackets, right? Well, we did too. And you put in some money and, um, uh, so the, not the first year, but the second year I won the pool and I waved the money. I walked right by Michael. Hey, Mike, thanks. I appreciate that. And then put the money in my pocket. And so he was, I think he was gone the next year. And then the year after that, he came in just in time for it or something like that. So he could he put in five, uh, entries and then somebody else won it. And then the next year he put in like 15 entries. So it wasn't just basketball that he had to win at. He had to win at golf. He had to win at absolutely anything that we were doing. And he was relentless about it. He wanted to win. We would bet on anything. We bet on what to, how long the plane flight was, okay? So, um, you know, if the plane, we're going to New York, so we'd bet an hour and 38 minutes or whatever it was. So I got this bright idea. I was going to win. So I went up, I had a $20 bill that had a little blue mark on it, a little magic marker in the corner of the $20 bill. So I thought, this is great. I'm going to pay the pilot the 20 bucks. I'll get the exact time and I'll win. 
And so I gave the pilot the 20 bucks and I said, Roger, he's a foot, former football player at Ohio State. I said, Roger, how long, you know, what will hit now? Believe me, he already knew. So he, he does all these calculations. He says an hour and 38, nine minutes or whatever it was. I don't even know. Hour and 39 minutes. So I, I put down, of course, an hour and 39 minutes. Michael puts an hour and 38 minutes. He got the thing right after me, an hour and 30. And then you put your money into the pot. And so um, the plane, just we were maybe, you know, two-thirds of the way there. And I feel the plane go just a little bit faster. And so um, we land, and we landed right on the dot for Michael's pick. I mean, my clock my clock literally moved to that time, and I had the digital watch, um, and Michael was sitting right behind me. So he stood up. He wanted to see it. So I click it. It's right on his time. He comes around as we're taxiing. He comes around and sits right next to me on the arm of the chair, pulls out the $20 that I tried to pay the pilot and says, just wanted to tell you thanks. So he's got the 20 bucks I paid the pilot, and then he takes in all the money that he won. We didn't bet with him anymore on how long the plane was going to last, how long the plane ride was, because it was fixed. It was fixed on whose car was going to be out first. It was fixed on whose bags were going to come out first, because he paid it. He didn't care about paying those guys. He just wanted to win at anything yeah and going into david stern and his relationship because he had to be the face of the league right when he came in as a rookie he really was the face of the league he signs that shoe deal with nike almost go into adidas but hilarious to see that his mother was the reason why he did eventually sign with nike forcing him to go to the nike campus Despite some bumps in the road with MJ and Stern's relationship and all of this nonsense about how he Stern suspended him uh, from the league for a year and a half, what was what was the relationship like? Describe the relationship because he was, like I mentioned earlier, the symbol of the league right from day one. Uh, and the second question I want to ask about David Stern is, and Michael's relationship is, what was MJ's motivation to come back eventually in '94, um, right at the end of the season? So, um, Michael, Michael and David got along real well. David would be at a few of our regular season games each year. Not many, you know, he had a job to do, but we'd see David a couple times and I'd talk to him. Um, but when it's your premier commodity, especially as the bulls started to win, this was the premier commodity. David was really, uh, was there a lot and was, um, um, was visible and you could tell he realized exactly what was going on. And no, I, th I think you're right. I think the, the nonsense about um, uh, people saying that Michael was banished from the league or whatever, yeah, there, there's no way, absolutely no way. Talking to Michael about how his relationship was, he said the NBA was always great to work with. Um, you know, it changed so much from the time he started you know, again, games were taped delayed a lot of times. You didn't see games live. And to now where you see every game live, right? Um, so that's a lot of that is due to David Stern. Uh, may rest in peace. But David really made those changes. But man, no, it, there were never any David Stern, Michael Jordan problems. Now, there were a couple lawsuits by the Bulls 
because they wanted to put more games on what was then the Superstation, WGN. And so um, there were lawsuits there with the Bulls, but Michael didn't care. Michael was great. He'd go home. If we had a home game, he would play the game, uh, and we weren't going anywhere. So home game, and we're not leaving anywhere after the game. He'd go back home and watch the game. He'd get a, a, a meal because you burn so much energy. So he'd eat something, watch the game, and then I might see him the next day or whatever, and he'd say, yeah, I watched this last night. Let's, I want to talk about this. Why did you say this? Or what did you see when you were what, when you said this? And he was, he was great because I could say, well, this is what I saw and this is what I thought. And he'd say, okay, let me show you how this works. And we'd sit and we'd talk basketball a lot. And so for me, it was great. But I could go to their practices. I could go to meetings. Phil Jackson said, unless I tell you you can't go, you've got free access. And I hosted Phil's TV show most of the time that I was there. There was one year that I didn't, but I think the rest of the time I did. So I got used to doing all of this um, uh, with all of them. And I could go anywhere. I could ask anybody anything. It was great, great access. Transitioning to Michael's early career after you win three titles in a row, of course, suddenly retiring after his father's death. What was his motivation to return from baseball in 1994? There was a lot of people talking about that he could make a career in MLB. He was getting close. He had some really good statistics in MLB. But what was his motivation to return from baseball eventually in the middle of the season in that 93-94 season? I, you know, I think the, the big key um, with him was – he, he actually did really well at double-A, and people question that. But when you haven't played baseball in 10 years or whatever it had been, and he goes out and hits 202, he just couldn't hit the slider. People thought it was a curveball. It was a slider. He couldn't hit a slider. Anyway, um, so he plays baseball for a year, and then there was the baseball lockout. And I think that had a lot to do with it. I saw him – we were in Chicago and I forget what we were doing. There was some kind of a charity thing and he came, they weren't sure if he would. So he comes over and he sits down and we talked for a few minutes. And I said, what do you want to do? And he said, you ask a very good question, my friend. Um, and so he talked about maybe coming back, but the whole key was his daughter, Jasmine at the time she was jazzy. Uh, was Jazzy being able to walk? He wanted Jazzy to be able to walk before he came back. And I said, why? Why does that make any difference whatsoever? And he said, I don't know. It's just kind of a milestone that I've set. So he came to a couple practices, and then he had breakfast with B.J. Armstrong before a practice. And B.J. said, hey, why don't you come over and see the guys? Everybody would like to see you. And so, um, uh, so he came. He said hi to everybody, and he got his shoes on, and he, you, you could see that the juices were starting to come back. And, um, and then about a week later, I think, Jazzy started to walk. And, um, and so not long after that, we were ready. And um, we were on the road somewhere, and Pete Myers and I, who was a starting guard at the time, Pete and I were going to go see a movie. And, um, and I said, how do you feel about this? And he said um, – I'd love for him to come back. Now, this is the guy that Michael's going to replace. Michael's going to move into the starting lineup. But um, <clears throat> Pete didn't care. Pete didn't have a problem with it at all. 
So um, I think it was just there were some unfinished things he wanted to do. He wanted to win more titles. He wanted to win more MVPs. He wanted to be um, thought of as the greatest of all time. I'm sure that was part of it. But basically, he missed being around the guys. And um, that's really what you take away from things like this is you miss the guys. Transition into Jerry Krause because he was such a big part of this documentary. His personality got a lot of pushback in, in the documentary, like I said earlier, about specifically actions and words. But his message to Phil Jackson sticks out above all the rest when he says before the 97-98 season, you can go 82-0 and and you will still not be the coach the next year. What was the atmosphere in the building like at practice, but also in the arena towards Krause, maybe with the fans, but also as a team? because he was joked at by the players. He says that organizations win titles, not players. So what was what was the what were the players' feelings towards Kraus, but also the fans when he was in the arena? Uh, the fans didn't like him because Michael didn't like him. Phil didn't like him. Scotty didn't like him. And so, yeah, they um when they would give out the rings every year before the first game, uh first home game he'd get roundly booed, absolutely resoundingly booed. Um, and, and it really bothered him. And I think a little backstory could help. I, I got along great with Jerry Cross. I never had a problem with it. But Jake, uh, Jerry, um, he'd, he'd like to go by Jake, JK, Jake. Um, so what I think a lot of it was that he wanted so desperately to be loved. He wanted people to feel about him like they did about Michael and Scotty and Phil, but they didn't. You know, he was, uh, he was a helper. He wasn't the main guy. And so I think a big part of that was what he wanted so desperately from the Chicago fans they were never going to give. So, um, but around, around the games, nah, you, you didn't see any of that. These guys knew their jobs that last year. And um, – whether it was the last dance or there could be one more, nobody let any of that get in the way. They just came out and did what they needed to do. Returning back to Phil Jackson, he has a crazy coaching path. He was at the Knicks. He goes to Puerto Rico. He comes back to the Bulls bench, and he brings triangle offense with him, and he has to teach MJ a new way to play the game. Just come off of Doug Collins. Uh, Doug Collins leaves the Bulls. Phil Jackson comes off as an assistant from the bench and comes on to coach the Bulls to talk about how did Phil not only handle a lot of personalities on that team, but also put in trust to MJ uh, for his offense because he didn't, uh, he didn't necessarily like Phil's offense at first because he had said just the way that he played his game. Yeah. And it really, in the end, as Michael would, would tell you, it really wasn't that much of a change. It was more instead of instead of attacking down the lane, you attack from the sides. That's a lot of what the triangle is, and so um, and you'll see a lot of misinformation about the triangle writ a lot of it. Um, but the big thing I think was that it took Michael a year, uh, a real solid season, to get used to it, to accept it, and then realize that it it promoted spacing. One of the things in basketball you want to do is you want to spread defenders out and you want to spread them along the baseline as much as you can. You can't do it, but you want to do it as much as you can. And so that's something that they did, and they did it really well. 
Um, so being able to spread all these guys out and allow Michael to penetrate, you'll see him penetrate from the wings. If you watch the highlights, he would get to the basket from the wings instead of straight down the lane. Straight down the lane, they thought people could help a little bit more. Now with the NBA with defenses, and it, it's just impossible to stop people now. Uh, and so it's a different game. But I think that really – that it took that year of P.J. and Tex Winter really working with that offensive scheme so that everybody bought into it. Moving on to Scotty Pippen, had an amazing journey to the NBA from Central Arkansas. Originally in college, wasn't playing on the basketball team. And he experienced a lot of tragedy through his whole life, and that was exemplified in the Last Dance documentary. But the quote that most sticks out on Michael's point is – he says, don't talk about my legacy without mentioning Scotty. Scotty's arguably the best number two in history. So talk a little bit about his great defensive style, but also his character because he's had up and down moments throughout this, his career. He demanded that trade in 1998. He said he wouldn't play another game for, that, for the Bulls. Um, talk about his up and downs, but also his just relentlessness on the defensive end, but also his role as that number two to Michael. Pip was very was not a big guy when he went to college. He was the manager of his high school basketball team uh, for four years, and then he went to Central Arkansas, a small school, because that's the only place he could go. His family was very poor. And so Pip goes to Central Arkansas and is the manager. And, and he's one of those guys that kept saying, Coach, I want to play, I want to play. And no, you know, you're, you're 6'1", you're not very good. So he comes back his sophomore year, and he's 6'7", and he's long, and he's really fast, and the coach didn't know who he was. He didn't recognize his manager from the year before. So he says, well, yeah, well, you know, you're 6'7", let's give it a shot. And so his sophomore year, he was really good, but not great. But you imagine from not playing at all to being really good. That's a big step. He comes back his junior year, and he was just a, a beast. And, of course, his senior year, they were, they were unstoppable. So you understand who he was and, who, and his transition from high school to college. He hadn't played much. So when Jerry Krause drafted him, um, he'd only had three years of really organized basketball. And he realized not only what he could be, not, not only what he was, but what he could be. So Pip, to me, again, Pip was my buddy. But as the number two, he was great. Um, when Michael left, and I, I texted him this during the, during the last dance, I said, Pip, the thing that I would say, and then he, I said it on Twitter, is that um, I think the year and a half that Michael was gone or whatever ended up being, that Pip was as good as anybody else in the league and could have won the MVP had he not been eliminated um, and had people believed in him more. He was terrific. He and I did TV games for two or three years um, after he retired. He, was, uh, he would come on for the, uh, for the playoffs with me and Johnny. And so, you know, you heard a lot about the players saying that their favorite guy on the team was Pip. Because Michael would rip him, and then Pip would come over, put their put his arm around him, and say, "Okay, here's what Michael's saying. Here's what you need to do." 
And so you really got to be tight with Pip. Well, I got to do the same thing with TV. He was a great learner. He was always hungry for more. We'd go through, we'd rehearse and rehearse and rehearse because he wanted to be perfect. And what people couldn't get past was his central Arkansas drawl. That's just how he talks. But his information is great. Anyway, um, I think he's one of the great defenders I've ever seen, maybe the best defender I've ever seen. And Michael's right up there, too. Um, and so that group, the first three years especially, was just so quick. Um, they'd put half-court or three-quarter court pressure on you, and you didn't have a lot of places to go with a pass. And so they didn't uh, steal a lot of balls, but they made you use a lot of time on the shot clock. And that 24 seconds is not a lot of time. You got to get into your play quickly. You got to get in. Got to get it to your to your score on that play quickly. And he's got to make a move quickly. And so that's what Pip was able to do is disrupt all of that. I think extremely well. Let's talk a little Dennis Rodman. So probably the most interesting personality in NBA history. He comes from the Bad Boy Pistons, and. He gives 100% every single night. He does have those trips occasionally, midseason highlighting that Vegas trip in the middle of 1998 where he goes away for 48 hours and MJ has to go eventually and pick him up. What made Dennis go 100% every single night? And Phil, the quote that I love was when the media was talking about, what are your worries, Phil, uh, that, that Raman's out of practice? It's the middle of the finals. He says, you guys, you guys are more worried than I am or something like that. What, what were your thoughts on Dennis Rodman just as a player, but also what made him go 100% every single night in that interior post? Dennis was just Dennis. Um, he, would, um, he was different. Dennis is just a different guy. Dennis is not what you think he is either. Dennis is shy, quiet, and an introvert. And so – Dennis would be the first one to give you 20 bucks if you needed it. He'd give you a hamburger if you needed it. He's just a sweet, really wonderful guy. Um, the trip to Vegas, I, I remember I was doing Phil's TV show, and Michael, uh, Phil said, hey, give me five minutes. I got to go talk to Michael. And that's what you saw in, the, in this thing is um, they went up to, to Phil's office with Dennis, and he told, uh, he told Michael he needed a vacation. Michael said, what? Everybody needs a vacation. It's me. I'm not taking – we have to win games. So it was during the All-Star break, so it wasn't all that big of a problem. And he was back. Um, so I'm sure Dennis ran out of money. I'm sure that's exactly what happened. Dennis and Carmen – and I know Carmen pretty well too. So I, I'm sure that's a lot of what happened is they just ran out of money. But, you know, this was Dennis – so Michael has to go to his house. When Michael goes to his house, knocks on the door and says, um, hey, you know, you got to come back. We're working again. The one that was the problem, I think, was the, um, when he went to the wrestling thing during the NBA finals. That was a problem. That, because he didn't tell anybody, he just left. And um, that people were pretty upset with that. So moving on to the bad boy Pistons, who Robin was a part of, some other challengers in the Bulls' path, most notably Detroit and their Jordan rules. Um, MJ had to 
lose a couple of series against them in the late 80s before finally getting past them in the 90s. The Knicks had Patrick Ewan. Um, MJ did say in the documentary that Reggie Miller and the Pacers were probably the hardest series he had to go through in the 98 season. In your opinion, between the Pistons, Knicks, Pacers, or maybe even the Jazz, who was the hardest for, for the Bulls to match up against man by man? Ooh, to match up against. Well, um, Utah was pretty – I guess they all in their own way. Um, they, they were different, right? So going to Utah with Malone and Greg Ostertag, they're big guys. They were a big lumbering team. And so Judd Bushler would play a lot for them, uh, for the Bulls during that time. Um, but, but each one was just a little different, I guess is the best way to put it. And so you kind of get to the – get to understand what they each brought. Uh, the Pistons were just, they would just beat you up. Um, I remember I saw Larry Bird somewhere and um, he and I sat and had a beer together. And so we're talking about um, the Pistons and the Bulls and just basketball in general. And, and he said, there's never anybody I ever wanted to kill, but I wanted to kill each one of them. <laughs> now it's not literally kill, but you know, beat them up or whatever. And um, yeah, I mean, they just, they would do anything they could, any dirty trick they could do. Larry would go up, Michael would go up for a jump shot, and before they'd land, Bill Lambeer would stick his foot underneath yours so that if you land on his foot, you're going to sprain your ankle. That's the kind of thing they did. And that's what Larry, there's a famous fight between Larry and, and uh, Lambeer. He's about 12 feet away, right? And, and Larry throws the ball at Lambeer and missed him at, from 12 feet. And so my comment was, LB, I, I, I'm guessing you never played much baseball, did you? And he, he knew exactly what I was talking about. He just started dying laughing. But it, it, that's who they were. Indiana, that year, Indiana was just so good. They were the next best team in the NBA. They were better than, uh, than Salt Lake that year. Um, uh, and so, but you had great teams every time. Those Knicks teams were kind of a combination of the bad boys and talent. Because Patrick Ewing was a heck of a player. Starks was a heck of a player. Um, you know, Derek Harper was a great player. And Charles Oakley. So, I mean, they had, they had, they had a great group. Um, but so in different ways, each team presented that different challenge. And, in each one of them, except the Pistons in that sweep, each one of them presented a tough series. Transitioning into that 98 playoff run and into those Pacers and Jazz series, what was the atmosphere like in the arena in the United Center, knowing that those series could be MJ's last games um, as a Chicago Bull? There's talks the whole year that this is the last dance, this is the last time that Phil Jackson will be the coach. What was the atmosphere like in the arena, knowing that this could be MJ's last game, specifically in that Pacers series in the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, that was the great series. Um, that was uh, that was a, a, a heavyweight fight every game. Um, and, yeah, I mean, people realized, I think after Indiana won game four, so they won three and four, now I think people realized, wow they're really that good and they could win this thing. Then those last three games got to be just bigger than life, right? 
Um, and then game five in Chicago was huge. And game seven in Chicago, the first time I think they'd gone to a game seven in forever. Um, that was just a monster game. And um, uh, I was talking to Rick Smits before the game. And, uh, and I said, uh, I said, this will be fun. And he said, we think so. We think it's going to be a fun game. They thought they were going to win, and they almost did. Yeah, and they were they had that big lead in the first quarter, like the documentary mentioned. Let's transition into that last episode where Jerry Reinsdorf comes out. He was featured a lot in the documentary. He tells the world what we all want to know, that he did call up Phil Jackson and offered him the job for another year because he deserves another chance. That's, what, that's how he put it. So did – Chicago fans have a lot of confidence in that at that parade and after the 98 season that that team would return for their seventh title or were they thinking past Jordan? Were they thinking that this is going to be the end? I think everybody had hoped that it would still continue, but at the same time, you realize that, you know, going to be pretty hard to bring Michael back. It's going to be pretty hard to get Phil to come back. And in the end, it was Phil. You know, Phil just didn't want to come back. He wanted uh, he wanted that year off. And I think part of it was that he wanted to snub Jerry Krause a little bit because Jerry, you know, you always want a chance to win a championship. That, that opportunity comes around very, very seldom for any professional team. So they had a chance to be there one more time. And so this is what they really looked at was – can they do this? Can they come back? Can they find a way? And I knew at the time, I knew Jerry Reinsdorf called Phil, and I knew right away what happened. Um, I knew that Phil basically said, nah, I'm not coming back. And we also knew that, I mean, we'd heard this for a long time, that Tim Floyd was the heir apparent instead of somebody from the NBA that really knew what they were doing. Had that happened, I think there was a chance they could have gone to Michael and Scotty and said, hey, look, here's who we're bringing in. We'd really like to give you one more chance. We tried with Phil. He just doesn't want to do it. And so um, long story short, I think everybody had a little hope, but not many people really believed it. I agree with you. I think if the Bulls went out there and they asked those great coaches in the NBA, you want to come coach this team, I'm sure that they would have had someone in the NBA with the experience to come and convince Michael to possibly come back. I do think that Scotty was probably out the door already, but it would have been a chance if they offered a guy that was in the NBA and that had experience. But before we wrap up the episode, I want to talk a little bit about the post-Jordan era. So you were there until 2008 broadcasting on Comcast. So Ever since that dynasty went to decay, the Bulls haven't really made headway in the playoffs. They haven't ever gone back to the finals. What's been the Bulls' problem in the past 20 years in their own organization, and how can they get back uh, on track soon because they're not even a playoff team nowadays? Well, when they had Derrick Rose, they had a season or two where they got pretty close. Um, but, you know, it's, um, it's hard. It's hard to get there. You have to get lucky in the draft, and uh, or, or you have to be L.A. or somebody like that to be able to make that move to be able to get where you need to get 
um, to win the championship. So that you, you just weren't going to be able to do that without the draft. And the Bulls won the draft with Elton Brand, and Elton was a nice player, but not a, not a, not a program changer, you know, not an organizational change, not a Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or LeBron James. Elton was really good, but in a down year for that top player, Elton was the number one pick. Almost any other year, Elton would have been the sixth, seventh, eighth pick, somewhere in through there. And again, he had a great career. He's doing a great job with Philly right now. So a lot of it has to do with luck in the draft. But, you know, you got to get bad. you got to get into that lottery three or four years in a row. You have to get the right pieces, but you have to get that one guy that other people want to play with. Zion Williamson, you know, people want to play with him. New Orleans, whenever they get started again, New Orleans is going to be pretty good. They've got a lot of nice pieces. And so that's what, uh, that's what I would suggest is that it's very, very hard. And, again, I'll, I'll go back to this. The Bulls got close with Derrick Rose. Until he got hurt, they were right there. They were definitely right there with LeBron and the Cavaliers back in mid-2010s. But thank you, Mr. Dorr, for coming on to the podcast. Really appreciate it. You can find uh, him on Twitter at Tom Dorr. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Shane Hokum. 13 and at the Shane show one on Instagram, everyone. Thank you for all the five-star rating and reviews. Make sure to keep on giving those reviews. Thank you for your support. It's been amazing. The past 15 weeks, we're on the 16th episode now of this podcast and we keep on getting better and better every single week. Thank you once again, Mr. Door for calling to this podcast and uh, stay safe. Everyone.